Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. It's been a crazy year for virtually every asset class. Commodities have been particularly interesting though, because earlier this year, when just about everything was selling off, commodities went on a bull run. It's a highly volatile sector, exposed to just about every macroeconomic variable, so investing in it takes a unique skill set. For today's episode, we're joined by Luke Smith from Ausbeal Investment Management. Luke runs Ausbeal's Global Resources Fund. The fund invests in natural resource companies using a top-down and bottom-up approach. It also goes short to help manage risk. We cover, among many other things, how he's playing the energy transition, how he uses long-term macro anchors to deal with short-term volatility, and he also provides the lithium name he put in the bottom drawer for five years. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, make sure to hit the follow button so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Well, Luke, thanks for joining us on The Rules of Investing. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So you run the Ausbeal Global Resources Fund. Um, What's the mandate, investment process, um, and what kind of investors are you targeting? Yeah, look, there's there's three of us that run the, the Osbill Global Resources Fund. Uh, myself and another colleague are, are the two portfolio managers that sit on it. Um, it's been going for the better part of four and a half years. Uh, w- when we set it up, uh, we took a view that we needed to do something a little different in terms of investing within the resources space, and, and hence it's got a long, short construct with with the view that um, you know to, to manage the risk, to manage the volatility within resources that. Uh, by having that uh, that shorting capacity would would enable us to to um, generate returns through the cycle. Um, ultimately, we're long bias, so we're trying to generate returns, you know, within um, within natural resources. But um, but having that long short construct, like like I highlighted, uh, yeah, reinforces it's about managing risk, man- managing volatility. We don't have a benchmark. So unlike a conventional global resources fund, this is a, a fund that we, we target preferred commodities. So in terms of our process, you know, we do the work on commodities. Um, ultimately, our preferred commodities will, will reflect the, the views and, and the, the equities that we, ha- we hold uh, in the portfolio generally. What does a commodities PM have to deal with that, say, an equities, a normal equities fund that's benchmarked to the 200 not have to deal with? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, you know, generally a benchmark related product is, is taking, um, you know, tilts relative to, to the, the benchmark that they're investing in. Um, you know, maybe stepping it away from ASX 200 and, and again, bring it back to a, a conventional global resources fund that will be benchmarked to a, to a natural resources index as well. Um, you know, what you'll find with, with those sort of products is, is that they're heavily weighted towards iron ore and they're heavily weighted towards oil. The, 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 the benchmarks will be dominated by the global diversified majors within the mining space and similarly within the, the oil space. Um, you know, where, whereas we're taking views on commodities. As I sort of highlighted, you know, the fund will, will, you know, rank the commodities in terms of our preference, um, you know, batch materials, copper, energy, you know, being core areas that we've been targeting from a positive standpoint for, for the last couple of years. Um, and then we'll, we'll fill the fund up with, with the best quality global equities that, that reflect those views. So, you know, like, like I highlighted, you know, unlike a conventional benchmark style product, which is in general taking tilts relative to the 
the benchmark. We're, we're taking you know, absolute views on on both commodities and and the equities that that um, reflect those views. Let's move to the market because there's a lot going on. <laughs> Give us your three minute market take. Um, what are you bullish on? What are you bearish on? Yeah, a uh, bit going on. You know, like like you highlighted. What, what, why don't I step it back to, to a discussion on the macro and and then drive you in into commodities in, in general? Um, you know, a bit going on. Last six months, it's been about monetary tightening and and what the implications of monetary tightening is having on global economic growth in the in the West. As a start, then you move to China, and and uh, on top of that, you, you've had these you know, COVID zero related lockdowns from the second quarter. Um, you know, arguably, they've eased you know through the course of this year, but it's definitely impacted um, you know one of the core drivers for commodities demand in China in terms of the economic backdrop there. And and um, so you've got this demand backdrop that that has been you know, quite you know, weak through the course of this year as as a starting point. But then as we feed it into Views around commodities and, and maybe you know stepping back over the last couple of years rather than being you know so short term around those key demand drivers. Um, you know, core area of a focus, core area of positioning of the fund in general has been battery materials. It's been copper base metals in general. It's been energy, oil and gas in particular. And look, there's a lot I can expand on those you know, those general areas. But, you know, we took a view as we came out of the COVID lockdowns first quarter of 2020 that the stimulus, you know, the green stimulus that we were seeing in both China and in, in Europe was really, you know, resulting in a, in a material acceleration in, in EV penetration, you know, into a market um, that had seen just a lack of investment new supply within that batch of materials, within the lithium, within the graphite-related complex. And we took early positions within that space. You know, it's sort of you know, an area that, you know, arguably is well known. The stocks have, you know, performed really well of late. But we, you know, where, where we did extremely well from a positioning standpoint was was positioning the fund early, you know, picking the turning points in, in you know within the batch materials complex in general. And and look, arguably the fund is still full of, of uh, you know, those core areas, you know, battery materials, base metals, um, and and uh, energy, and and to some degree we've been you know short or using you know funding sources within iron ore, you know, within gold as, as the areas that have you know been hedging you know some of the risk in, in the portfolio in general. Um, but you know, there's there's dynamics that will play out positively for both of those commodities in the near term. So look, it's it's probably a space that's it's it's always ongoing in terms of how we, we navigate things. You mentioned slowing growth. Um, Stanley Druckenmiller stated uh, this year that we have a decade of stagflation on the way. Um, I've got a chart here that shows the performance of commodities versus equities um, and commodities outperformed equities uh, through the stagflation of the 70s. Do you see history possibly repeating itself here? Yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting when... when uh, you come at things from a simplistic perspective around correlation of inflation to performance of asset classes. And, and I think, you know, this year highlights that, you know, some of that overlooks what actually plays out, you know, with, uh, you know, with through periods, you know, we've had a period of high inflation that's come through, um, arguably as a surprise, you know, certainly to central banks over the last six to 12 months that, you know, you know in general, you, you would argue that commodities resources perform well, you know, through periods of inflation. You know, you, you asked about stagflation, but let, let's talk about inflation. Yet, 
this year has been an extremely challenging year in general across all asset classes. And so, and so I think, you know, sometimes these simplistic views sometimes overlook what actually plays out. And what's played out this year is inflation resulting in monetary tightening, resulting in concerns around economic growth. And, and you know, that's, that's the starting point for why equities have been under pressure and that's fed into commodity-related equities as much as any. You know, it's been a really challenging backdrop the last, you know, three to six months in, in particular. What, what we'd highlight, and maybe I'm not answering your question here, but what, what we'd highlight as well is, is that the West is very important. You know, the, the, the West, um, is, uh, you know, a major driver for commodities demand and, and, you know, economic growth slowing in, in the West. You know, it's clearly a negative for, for commodities demand. But what gets overlooked in that whole discussion is China is half of all commodities demand. We had a period of, you know, extremely stro- slow growth through the GFC, as, as an example, and and China beats to a different tune is what we'd highlight. The building blocks getting put in place for China, both from a health system perspective and from a stimulus perspective, to enable an acceleration of, of activity through the course of next year. And China's, you know, more than half of all commodities demand. Um, sure, the weakening Western environment is negative. I think that got priced pretty quickly through the course of, of the last six months or so. But what, what we're looking at, you know, and and again, it's sort of expanding to some degree on, on your question is that China is accelerating, you know, into a market that that is quite tight. And so we see a real opportunity at the moment is probably what we'd highlight. Are you saying the the concerns around China are overstated? There have been a few warning signs coming out of China with um, your property developers defaulting, et cetera. Are you still bullish on the outlook for China? Yeah, look, um, it's, it's an interesting comment that you know, I, I see written by you know, some experts at the moment that the macro is outweighing the, the micro at the moment. You know, some of what's playing out within resources from a micro perspective is far more positive than is being reflected based on sentiment directed towards commodities and commodity-related equities. That that what we've seen when we're looking at China as, as a starting point, um, you know, through the first six months of this year, more special purpose bonds were issued in the first half than all of last year. You know, that they're putting these building blocks in place to stimulate. The health system is getting set up to enable them to navigate through, you know, this, this COVID zero related policy and open up the economy as, as we go into next year. I think the market is understandably concerned, pessimistic on, on the outlook for China. But what we're seeing from a data perspective, the micro, the underlying data around stimulus, around the health system, around um, you know, industrial-related activity, the high-frequency data that we look at in terms of coal consumption, in you know, infrastructure investment, infrastructure approvals, is is supporting the fact that, that China is really setting up to, once again, like historical periods, to accelerate in a period where the West is, is decelerating. And, you know, that again sets um, sets commodities up quite well for, for the next 12, 18 months from our perspective. Of course, we had a commodities bull market earlier this year. Um, those gains have since been- <laughs> yeah. yeah, the gains have since been pared back. 
Um, take us through your positioning uh, before, during, and after. How did you manage that? Yeah, yeah, the super cycle. Yeah, yeah apparently it's over. Um, again, yeah, my, my view that the, the macro at the moment is outweighing the, the micro. So, so you know, reinforcing my comments. West is decelerating. East China, in particular, from our perspective, is is accelerating. You got these secular growth trends that are playing out that are very important for metals. You know, decarbonisation, in particular, electrification of all things. You know, the starting point being EVs, electric vehicles. But you know, decarbonisation doesn't happen without metals. So you know, this demand backdrop that will improve. Not only will it improve, it'll be turbocharged by the fact that we've got decarbonisation that requires. Metals. Metals. And, and then, you know, on top of, top of that, you've got a market that has just got a, a lack of investment in new supply. You know, the, the, you know, for the last decade, you know, we've been forcing the likes of BHP Rio to give money back to shareholders to not invest in growth. And, and, and what it's meant is that the market is far more tighter than, than the, 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 um, the prices, the commodity prices are are reflecting from our perspectives. So, you know, we, we see, you know, quite a, a fundamentally supportive market. You know, clearly at the moment, though, just trying to navigate through, through the risks. Um, you know, how have we positioned the portfolio for the last couple of years. You know, let's let's start with the core areas, batch materials. You know, took an, an early view on batch materials two and a half years ago, lithium in particular, where the commodity, spodumene, hard rock lithium, was trading at four hundred dollars a ton. You know, we're now seeing transactions go transactions go through at eight thousand dollars a ton. You know, what's happened? What's happened is the demand profile has accelerated at a rapid rate rate, in particular within China, in particular within Europe, and and has fed into a market that that has just has seen a lack of investment, new supply. Um, you know, an area like commo- you know copper, where, which is a commodity that we like. You know, it's it's a commodity that's on the nose from the general market perspective. Doctor Copper. You know, the amount of times that I, I need to hear people say Doctor Copper. You know, in terms of a commodity that just reflects people's views on economic growth, and, and copper gets hit. But the fundamentals for copper are extremely tight. Inventories extreme lows. Um, you know, lack of investment, new supply. Supply, you know, really pointing to a, a much tighter market that's being reflected. You know, if, if the last couple of weeks are highlighting anything that you know, positioning in some of these commodities is so negative, and yet the the micro setup within these commodities is 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 really positive. So, you know, in terms of positioning towards copper has, has been a significant area. And then, you know, let's talk about oil and gas. You know, like um, fossil fuels. You know, like the, their um, you know, sort of structure actually challenged from a long-term basis, right? You know, this is stuff that, you know, we say ourselves, but you can't Underinvest in these commodities and not to you know, not expect you know extreme spikes in, in in commodity prices. You know, thermal coal is a good example as to what plays out. You know, in, in an energy transition, um, you know, you know we're shifting to decarbonisation, we're shifting to renewables, but we still need baseload you know, you know sort of supply of fossil f- fuels to meet power gen, to meet transportation, and, and oil and gas is another area that we think. 
think is probably at early stages of, of um, let's not say breaking out, but the early stages of, of a, um, a uh, you know, sort of super cycle, if you want to call it that, where, you know, lack of investment, new supply and, and demand that clearly will be structurally, you know, challenged longer term, but is needed at the moment and, and therefore feeds into a commodity that will continue to price well. So, so that's sort of how we position the fund over the last couple of years in particular. Let's zero in on the, the decarb piece. How do you think about that super cycle? On the one hand, moving to an electric future is inevitable. Fossil fuels are finite. We're going to run out of them. Um, but on the other hand, there's, there's a lot of money to be made before the curtain falls. So how do you think about moving from, from one to the other, um, you know, and, and that, that demand equation? Yeah. Um, we, we, we try and, Target opportunities both on the long short side, right? Is probably what I'd highlight. I, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I own, you know, you can own battery materials related commodities and you can own fossil fuels. Um, you know, we still need fossil fuels, um, you know, for some time. You know, they still will be the commodities that enable this transition. It is a transition. It's not a hard stop in how, how it'll play out. You know, we've been targeting batch materials. That's generated some strong returns for the fund in general, um, you know, through, through the last couple of years, but, but it's not a ideological related view. It's, it's a view that battery materials are core to this discussion around electrification. And I say battery materials, and it starts with lithium, graphite, cobalt, you know, these first derivative commodities that feed into lithium-ion batteries is probably a good example, but it also feeds into the importance of nickel, copper, you know, these core you know, base, um, you know, sort of commodities that, you know, we, we see an environment which yeah, lithium demand will grow by 10x over the next decade. It's quite incredible the demand profile that that will be you know fed off um, decarbonisation. So, de- so decarb, the decarb super cycle will be in many ways a commodities super cycle. You, you don't have decarbonisation without metals. It's as simple as that. So, I gave the example of of lithium, but you feed it into a commodity like copper. And we still see you know, a commodity that, you know, in terms of a market that needs to double over the next 10, 15 years as well. And, and look, copper's a massive market. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, generally it grows at GDP and, and you throw in electrification and, and it gets turbocharged, you know, excuse the, the pun. And, you know, this is a commodity that notably we're seeing a lot of M&A in the space within copper at the moment. And, and why is that? You know, again, it comes back to this discussion about lack of investment, new supply. You know, BHP Rio looking to, you know, consolidate assets within the copper space and, and they're doing it because they haven't invested for the last 10 years in major copper projects. And, and if we've got a commodity that is going to double over the next 10 years in terms of, uh, of demand, and, 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 and again, copper's a long way down the list in terms of these you know, sort of commodities that benefits that, that, that people first think of. They, they think of lithium and graphite as a starting point, but you know, the copper market is going to structurally change and things are going to continue to evolve in terms of you know, the requirements for, for you know, copper as it feeds into you know, sort of EVs, you know, six times as much metal in, in an EV as there is an internal combustion. On top of that, you've got transmission, you've got recharging, it's all copper heavy. So, so you know, we see you know, real opportunity on that decarb piece that, that feeds into metals more broadly, 
But that doesn't mean we're not investing in fossil fuels. You know, again, bringing it back to what's playing out, um, demand doesn't just stop for fossil fuels, um, you know, tomorrow, but we still need them. You know, we, you know, it still feeds into transportation, still feeds into baseload power generation, still feeds into you know, a whole raft of areas in, in the, you know, the, 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 you know, sort of commodities that we consume in general. And, and, you know, again, bring it back to, you know, some of these commodities, you know, oil, gas, thermal coal that are just seeing extreme spikes that, you know, people are arguing relates to, you know, Russia, you know, and, and you know, the Russia-Ukraine related crisis, you know, it's been elevated because of Russia-Ukraine, but these issues were playing out long before the, the crisis, you know, sort of, you know, took, took stock in, in February of, of, um, of this year. And, and really it comes back to not investing you know, equity or debt within the space and, and, um, and, and really an investors pushing back on broader investment in fossil fuels that, that sets up, uh, you know, that, that side of the equation as well. That really speaks to the, the noise, um, in the commodity space. They're very volatile. They're exposed to just about every macroeconomic and geopolitical trend under the sun. Um, what for you is a signal? And what's a noise, and how do you filter that into your your stock selection? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, extremely volatile space, you know, and, and yeah, fortunate for us in terms of the structure around long long short that that helps us navigate um, navigate through that. But again, we we are a long biased fund, so we're looking to generate positive returns by being long largely through through the cycle. Um, we start with the fundamentals. You know, we do, do the work on the fundamentals. You know, Ausbill as a house starts with the macro. You know, a very strong team, but both from a economic and portfolio management side of things that start with the macro and do the work on, on the economic outlook. Um, you know, uh, globally as a starting point. Then, then as a resources team, you know, we, we do a, an even greater level of detail around the demand outlook as it feeds into, as it feeds into the West, as it feeds into China. Um, yeah, then we do the supply demand analysis on on top of that. So we we, we start with this long term anchor that is driven by the macro. Yeah, we're positive on the macro for, for, you know, in terms of the fundamentals within resources. The West might be decelerating. China's going to accelerate. You know, the secular growth trends, you know, decarbonisation in, in particular, lack of investment, new supply. That, that's my that's my and the team's long term anchor in terms of what we're investing in through the cycle. Um, and then you bring it back to the near term and there's a lot of volatility, you know? So we have this long-term anchor. There's a volatile environment. We need to manage risk. We, we manage risk through, you know, balancing things, you know, within the net market exposure of the fund, balancing things with the long short component that enables us to manage risk, balancing things, you know, you know, with a put option overlay across the, the portfolio as well, which is, you know, just looking to, to, um, to, to manage through the volatility. You know, what, what's noise? What's the sync signal in terms of your, your question there as well? And, and, and so, you know, sentiment being extremely negative at the moment, positioning being extremely negative at the moment. You know, we, we've got this long-term anchor 
that we're looking at. And then we look at a lot of high frequency data, you know, that, that give us the confidence in, in terms of what we're investing in, you know, realizing that, you know, sentiment will, you know, shift around. But, you know, to some degree, you know, this is where the opportunities, you know, are created, you know, that, that, you know, the, 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 the wealth that was generated post the GFC, post, you know, extreme periods of negative sentiment, you know, creates opportunities and, and we're seeing those opportunities. So the high frequency data that we're looking at then gives us the confidence if it's looking at coal consumption in China. You know, this pessimism around what's playing out in China at the moment doesn't tie back in with industrial related activity. You know, doesn't tie back in with the level of coal consumption, which is, you know, for us a proxy for, for, um, industrial activity in China. Again, reinforcing the level of, of, um, stimulus that we're seeing that's getting injected in the system in China, that, you know, these special purpose bonds that the building blocks for us are getting put in place, but they're being overlooked by the market because it's too easy to be negative. Like it's far too easy to be negative in a negative market, but the flip side and where the real opportunity, where the returns are generated is having counter consensus views that are substantiated by underlying data. And, and, um, yeah, we look at a lot of data that, that helps support the, the views that, that ultimately we're, we're being reflected in, in our portfolio. You touched there on these very long term structural macro trends. How do you think about something like an Eastern European war in Ukraine, uh, the outcome of which is completely unknown in terms of time frame? Um, does it become, do you, do you leverage that and the volatility it creates as a buying opportunity? Yeah, look, that, that's a, that's a great question, right? It's, it's very topical given, given it's sort of near term in terms of everyone's focus. And on top of that, the importance of Russia. And Ukraine to commodities markets in, in general. And, 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 you know, it's part of why we've seen some of these extreme moves in, in commodities as well. You know, as, as it fed into the crisis, you know, we positioned within gold to, you know, as that safe haven to give us protection across the portfolio it was probably one area that we'd sort of highlight, you know, positioning that we, you know, helped us navigate through some of the volatility, you know, through the, the early stages of the, the crisis. But then, you know, as it shifts into energy policy, which I think is, is far more important for this broader context. Um, you know, Europe within weeks of, of the invasion came out with what, what's called Repower EU. And, and what Repower EU looks to do is it looks to reduce the reliance of, of, um, of Europe as a starting point on gas molecules or, or molecules of energy from Russia. You know, they're highly dependent on, on gas in particular from Russia. So this Repower EU, Look to at first, you know, sort of accelerate the the intake of, of fossil fuels from a seaborne standpoint, um, you know, into into Europe to put them in a good position to navigate the the short term, um, you know, and reducing the reliance on Russia. But what they are also looking to do is is accelerate decarbonisation. You know, so some of what happened post. Russia was a question mark as to whether or not this drive to take more fossil fuels into Europe that weren't Russian meant that they were moving and the globe was moving away from an acceleration to, to decarbonization. And, and what I'd highlight is it's both, right? The short term is about fossil fuels. The long term, what Europe is looking to do as a starting point with this discussion is, is, um, accelerate the use of, of renewables, accelerate the, the, the EV penetration, accelerate 
accelerate hydrogen and and similarly to reduce their reliance on, on energy out of Russia as a result of reducing the, the demand for fossil fuels over the medium term as well. Just tying off this chat about the energy transition, a lot of our listeners and readers have been investing in legacy energy um, for a long time and a very sceptical to be honest, of, of decarbonisation, be it the technology itself or the investment thesis uh, supporting it. Um, now, of course, as as you've mentioned uh, throughout this chat, you're bullish on on electrification and decarb. What what would you say to these these listeners and readers? What are they missing? I don't think they're missing anything on on owning fossil fuels is probably be my starting point. I, I don't think owning fossil fuels has to be mutually exclusive yeah. of um, owning owning the commodities that feed into decarb, the commodities that feed into electrification. Um, but what I'd sort of highlight is is Australia is is uh, you know a long way behind the rest of the world in terms of what's playing out within electric vehicles is probably a good example that you know that um, what is playing out in China ironically within decarb is is leading the world from an electric vehicle standpoint um, and and really you know should be reinforced in terms of the the rapid acceleration of EV penetration within in China is, is incredible and 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 it's not just because of subsidies anymore you know it, it's because of relative cost. Yeah, regardless of what's happened with the the commodities that that feed into lithium ion related batteries and, and the strength that we've seen there, that it is cheaper to buy an EV than it is an internal combustion car in China and and similarly in Europe as well. So look, I think you know Australia is a long way away from from some of what's playing out with within EV within electric vehicles to some degree. You know, US similarly is 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 lagging materially as well. But but what I'd highlight is, you know, it's not mutually exclusive. You know, you, you can generate strong returns uh, by actively managing fossil fuels. It's not it's not hold and you know, buy and hold within thermal coal at the moment is probably what I'd, I'd highlight. Um, you know, and actively managing within oil and gas similarly, um, you know, you can generate strong returns, but you, you don't have to sit there and, and um, you know, push back on what's playing out w- within decarbonisation. It's real, and if anything, you know the mandated net zero targets, um, both by governments and by um, yeah by companies, um, uh, is you know the, the requirements and the mandate requirements, the, the run rates that we're seeing within the space at the moment are lagging materially to meet those targets. So yeah, the growth that we're going to see within this space, within this electrification decarbonisation space is only going to grow exponentially is probably what I'd highlight. So it's a mistake to equate Australian EV and renewables penetration with demand for lithium, copper, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, it's like Australia. You know, you see enough you know, Teslas around, obviously, right? But Australia is not, you know, best place to roll out an EV strategy. Is probably what I'd highlight. We're not going to be market leaders, you know, given the the distances as, as a starting point for our fleet to to roll out EVs, and and we're materially lagging what's playing out. You know, in terms of. 30% EV penetration of new sales in China. Like, yeah, it's, it's amazing what Xi Jinping is doing within this, this decarb, this electric vehicle space. And, and, you know, 
you know, sort of unfortunately it, it's it's fueled by you know coal fired power generations. So, but at the same time, the the what's playing out in China is, is a, a real leader, a real example in terms of what's going to happen globally in terms of an acceleration of EVs. We've discussed to extent um, why you're you're bullish on these subsectors. Let's go down now to the company level. Um, how do you find relative value? within these subsectors and uh, can you provide some examples of, of companies that are, are offering uh, good relative value at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't I start high level at, at the start? So battery materials, um, you know, yeah, your first starting point for battery materials when, when we took a positive view two and a half years ago was, was being positive within lithium in particular. And okay, like how did we want to get Lithium exposure. You, know, you look around globally. You know, we get a global resources fund. You look around globally, and um, uh, Chinese lithium companies uh, quite expensive. You know, U.S. lithium companies, you know, similarly are, are relatively more expensive. So you, you, we started by owning the the Aussie producers. You know, back then it was you know the galaxies of the world, but you know the Allchems and the Pilbaras was was where we started from. Where the the companies that were producing were generating cash, and and as they re-rated, you know, we we look at relative value, and, and we shifted towards the the Aussie developers. You know, and, and uh, Core Lithium is probably a good example there. Our know, stock that Ausbill as a house has, has been behind and and you know, helped fund you know some of the development that's played out with Core and and you know they're they're uh, you know, one one of the new producers within the hard rock spodumene place space in, in general. But you know, as you know, these stocks from a development standpoint, you know, re-rated in Australia, you know, what we found was the Canadian listed names were lagging. You know, we we we. We had this one macro theme and we started by owning the Aussie producers. We shifted into the Aussie developers. Then on relative value, the, the Canadian, you know, sort of developers were lagging as well. And there was a, as a, there was a inefficient market in terms of how this view around the macro was playing out that led us to owning the Canadian developers. I'm just saying that it's a very high level, but the Canadian developers, then we saw a lot of M&A in the Canadian development space. We saw half a dozen names get consolidated, you know, globally. We haven't seen that in Australia, but we saw those names get consolidated. So, you know, as the relative value shifted over the last two, two and and a half years, we've just rotated globally in terms of owning th- those examples that are probably provided, um, and and then still now, you know, we look at the last three months, you know, that that there's been a massive re-rate in terms of the Aussie names, and there's been a big lag still in terms of the, the Canadian producers, developers. And 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 so by having this global mandate, it, it once again enables us to do the top-down work, formulate an extremely you know, a high conviction view on a commodity, and then look for the best ways to reflect you know, value and reflect the best way to, to reflect those views. And on top of that, use the shorts to give us some level of protection to, you know, to, to support, you know, area, you know, periods of volatility within the space as well. But the shorts aren't a primary driver of return. Um, you know, in terms of where we start with, you know, you know, if, if I outline our three preferred commodities, you know, at a high level, batch materials, copper, oil and gas, where we're running net long exposure. 
you know, you know, for the fund targeted towards those commodities, you know, there will be a short overlay with, within those commodities. There will be a put option overlay within those subsectors. But, you know, we start with reflecting our, our core views on commodities, our preferred commodities by having net long positioning in those core commodities. And, and then, you know, potentially we, we may use some of the shorting to be, you know, somewhat broader based. It might be managing risk you know, around, you know, China concern. You know, you know, as a start, the, you know, we, we might be using the shorts to, to, um, you know, on commodities that we have a, a less preferred you know, area towards, say, you know, you know, as an example, you know, iron ore, gold for the last two years, you know, probably been, you know, commodities that, that we haven't, you know, we've been, been a little, you know, less positive on and, and therefore, you know, capital allocation has meant that we're using the shorts or using negative positioning to give us protection across the portfolio as, as a, as a whole. So, so the way that we use shorts, it's about risk management. As a starting point, it's about managing volatility. It's about managing, you know, risk, you know, at, at the broader macro, you know, whether or not it's what's played out with, within the West and a deceleration economic growth, whether or not it's China and, and pessimism around China. So we're using the shorts to, to manage risk, you know, across a portfolio. Um, but then on top of that, there, there may be alpha shorts that, that we're targeting. There may be, you know, stocks that we're concerned about earnings downgrades or commodities at risk of, of correcting and, and feeding into earnings downgrades or at risk of balance sheet and capital management, capital, um, you know, sort of uh, equity raisings and like that, that may feed into some of what we'd call, you know, alpha related shorts. But, but as, a, as a start, the shorts are Sister. risk management. Luke, we always finish with three favorite questions, uh, which we put to our fundies. Number one, what's the single biggest thing investors are getting wrong about markets at the moment? Yeah, well, the market's never wrong, right? So, uh, um, <laughs> market's extremely negative at the moment. Um, market's very much within resources as well, you know, focused on the deceleration of the West, deceleration economic growth and, and understandably, you know, inflation at these levels, monetary tightening. Like, I, I don't think they're getting anything wrong there. It's just as it feeds into, Resources, you know, with, with China being half and more of all commodities demand, the, the skepticism as to what's playing out within China is probably where rather than let's say they're getting it wrong, but where we're far more positive than the market is that we've got an expectation or a view with the data that we're looking at that one, the building blocks are getting put in place around health around relaxation of this COVID zero policy, around stimulus directed at infrastructure in particular, that and, and and also looking at the high frequency data that gives us confidence that the 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 level of industrial activity has been picking up, that gives us you know confidence that the the market's pessimism towards China, especially as a rolls into next year is, is far too negative and far too negative as to how that feeds into, you know, commodities related view in general. And that provides opportunities. Definitely. Definitely. Across the board, um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, an example of the last couple of weeks, you know, there's been speculation that, that, um, China was going to roll back COVID zero related policies. Um, copper rallied 8% one night. 
you know, the stocks are up 10% plus. We're, we're at max extreme bearishness from a, from a perspective on commodities, from a perspective on commodity related equities. Um, uh, you know, positioning is extremely low, um, you know, w- within both commodities and, and within the equities, um, that reflect those commodities. And that, that's where opportunities are presented. And that's where, you know, you can generate supernormal returns by taking a view looking at the data, looking at the fundamentals, managing risk, you know, at the same time, but taking a structural longer term view that, you know, can generate strong returns for investors. Question two, can you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in in your career? Um, What happened and what did you learn from it? Yeah. um, Let's talk about the wins rather than losses. That's, that's, that's always uh, far more cheerful. But uh, fair play. Uh, well, look, uh, let's let's go back to coming off. You know, some of my comments around the real opportunities sometimes that are presented in equity markets and commodity markets. They're when everyone is negative. You know, oil in 2020 went negative. Like, I've never seen anything like it before in my life. Like, people are paying you to take barrels of oil off them. And, and, uh, you know, it's a commodity that is in strong demand. Like, it was a pretty incredible period. Um, and everyone was negative early 2020 and understandably so. Like, first quarter, first quarter of 2020 was a pretty extreme period, you know, for equity markets. And then as, as it fed into, into, um, commodity markets, you know, we, we did the work. You know, took a fundamental view on a commodity like oil as an example. And, and, um, you know, coming back to the fact that we've seen this underinvestment, you know, since the latter part of 2014 within the, the oil complex, you know, a shift, um, you know, to invest in, you know, gas projects, a shift to invest in renewables by the super majors or into hydrogen, uh, or just a lack of investment in general. And, and what that fed into is a market that, you know, during the course of 2020, the market was extremely negative. Like I said, it went negative. Um, we had the vaccine announced in, in November of 2020. We took, took a positive view leading into that. We bought, you know, one of the global super majors. It seems like not the way that you get leverage into an oil market, but Occidental Petroleum, it's been a core position in the fund for the last two, two and a half years. We were buying it at $8. You know, the, the company was apparently going to zero. Their tier one assets in the US, they'd overgeared to, to, um, to do an acquisition leading into the downturn, took a strong view on the macro, strong view on the commodity, looked at the asset, bottom end of the cost curve for, for what they own, high quality assets. Um, and, you know, 40 bucks a, a barrel in terms of, you know, break even. And, you know, we coin it re-equitization, you know, sub 10 billion of equity in the business. And there was 40, 50 billion dollars worth of debt. And, and what we've seen then is, is, you know, the stock, up eight to 10x is a global super major in the oil and gas space that is up eight to 10x. And, and, you know, it's probably been a, an example of a win. And, and what have we learned from it? Again, it comes back to doing the work on the fundamentals, taking a counter consensus view and, and, um, you know, in terms of getting leverage, it doesn't have to be through the minnows. You can get it through, you know, owning, you know, high quality businesses that, you know, that, that reflect, you know, strong ways to get leverage to commodities. Were they able to de-gear in the end? 
yeah, it's it's been an incredible process to 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 gear de gear and you know you've you've gone from you know like I said a re-equitisation where a flip from you know having you know too much debt now to you know being it being it shifting to to equity through that process and and now you're talking about a, a company that's you know major owner is Warren Buffett you know a guy that doesn't own commodities you know has always pushed back on this space in general and and you know it's it, it's um you know what one of those names that you know, high quality company that's been able to degear and that's given us the leverage to this cycle um you know through the last two years since the the vaccine was announced in November of 2020 final question uh now we don't recommend anyone has 100% exposure to any one company but if markets were to close tomorrow for five years um, and you could only own shares in one company, uh, which company would that be and why? Yeah, oh, how good would that be? I'd get some sleeve and my hair might grow back, but uh, <laughs> grays and stuff stop you're, coming through. You've got plenty but, uh, of hair, mate. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, look, I, I, th I think it comes back to this discussion around decarbonisation. I, I know – a lot has played out and there's been a major re-rate in a lot of these lithium stocks. So it seems like a, a bad example to, to call out a lithium stock, but I'd throw all chem at you as an, as an example. It's a stock that, um, you know, that, that Ausbill as a house has, has owned a, you know, significant, um, you know, stake in for, for some time. Uh, you know, it's got three major developments. So, you know, the market closed tomorrow and we come back in five years. What does this business look like? You know, three major you know, developments with, within the, the lithium space that would ultimately in the next five years put them on par with the, the global super majors of, of lithium, um, at the moment. And, and, you know, from our perspective, that just isn't getting priced that, that, you know, you come back in five years and, and this business will, will, um, be a completely different business, has an exceptional amount of growth in a commodity that, you know, will go through a number of cycles in the next five years. Um, you know, you know, lithium is, is uh, going to be the extreme in terms of cycles and short cycles, but, you know, it's positive view around decarbonisation, the demand backdrop that will only accelerate exponentially from here globally, you know, sets a, a commodity up well, supply that, you know, struggles to, to, to keep up, you know, all chem, you know, developing and well-funded to develop these projects and put it on par with, with the likes of, um, Albemarle and SQM, you know, the, the global super majors within the, the lithium complex. Luke, what a chat. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Well, that's it for today's episode. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next time.